Heavenly Father, we once again thank you uh, for your Bible. Uh, we thank you uh, that uh, your Bible uh, encourages us, comforts us, uh, points us uh, to the way of salvation, but it also rebukes us and uh, warns us if we will not uh, uh, turn, if we will remain proud. And Lord, we pray that this would not be uh, true of us, but rather than straying from your commandments, we pray that we would run to them and run especially to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would flee to him our sore relief. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we live in days of controversy. Uh, we live in days where uh, we're battling to work out what is a man. Uh, scientists in our uh, government have been asked what is a woman and they just cannot divine, define something so basic uh, to our existence. Uh, if you go to classes in schools today, uh, schools are struggling to work out what is gender and what is uh, sex. We've mutilated the meaning of the word marriage. Uh, it basically means nothing. Um, and the obvious question in a society that constantly is moving and uh, struggling with even knowing the most basic things about uh, humanity is the obvious question, where can we find truth? Uh, how can we know the answers to questions in a confused world? Well, Ephesians 5, obviously, has been giving us so many answers, and we're so thankful for Ephesians 5. Last week, um, uh, we, we found that Ephesians 5 confirms that a wife is a woman, a husband is a man. Uh, and yes, men and women are different, and marriage is between a man and a woman. And uh, we have different roles in marriage. Uh, this morning, uh, our text starts from verse 22, uh, and I'll read that. Uh, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the saviour of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. But then our verse, the key verse for us this morning. Husbands, love your wives, uh, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Uh, last week we obviously looked at submission of the wife. This week we're going to look at uh, the love of the husband. And the first thing we pick up is that, um, from our verses, is that the headship of the man is determined by God. And it was determined by God really in creation. Uh, when we studied the submission of a wife, we looked at the command clearly, yes, last week. Uh, but we didn't consider why that command was given to wives. We didn't consider the reason for the command. God provides us with a reason for why a wife should submit to her husband. And you find the reason in verse 23. Uh, so, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord is verse 22. And then verse 23 starts with that word, for. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is saviour of the body. The husband's headship is a fact. It's a stated fact. Uh, it's not a command to a husband. It's a description of a husband. We're not told why the husband is the head in this passage. And so the passage has generally generated controversy. 
Uh, some will say Paul is a male chauvinist pig. Uh, he, he basically observed that males are physically stronger than females. Uh, we, females are generally weaker than males and so he, like an ape man, basically claimed superiority over women in all things. Uh, women had no option and so they basically agreed. Um, uh, others say, uh, well, it's not really Paul. Uh, they say, yes, he was single. Um, yes, he might not have had a constructive relationship with a woman. And so he did have these odd views, but it wasn't quite Paul. It was actually society. Um, society was the problem because we've evolved from ape man again. You blame him for everything, really. Uh, and... Um, and he had a low view of women. And as we've evolved and as we've refined, well, our view of women uh, has only been a bit slow, but it's getting there. And so in Paul's day, society was backward, but now, well, we've moved ahead, moved ahead and we're so much wiser. Um, and sadly, there is some truth to that, isn't it? Because if you go and read the Jewish writings... Uh, for instance, the common Jewish prayer for the morning uh, says something like this. Bless you, uh, blessed are you, Lord, our God, ruler of the universe, who has not created me a woman. So his first thing he prays to God is that he's very thankful. He's not a woman. He goes further to say he's not a slave. He's not a Gentile, and he's so thankful for that. Uh, but obviously the most important thing is to thank God that he's not a woman. And it sort of shows you the low view of women, even amongst Jews. The Greeks and Romans were no better in the Greek culture. Uh, you married a wife to bear your children and to look after the house. Uh, but if you were looking for pleasure or friendship, well, you went outside the home. Even the local religion provided prostitution services. The Romans had no provision for women in their legal system. Um, women were either under their father or they were under their husband. They were never recognized under law and they were effectively slaves to either their father or their husband. So in a polluted sense, in a corrupted sense, um, headship existed in Paul's day. Um, rule or chauvinism was fashionable really in Paul's day. So why would Paul have to say, Wives, submit to your husbands. Uh, it sounds redundant, doesn't it? Why would you have to say to men, husbands, uh, love your wife, or husbands, you are the head of your wife? Um, fast forward to 1973, and that's not so far away from us, uh, and Dr. Stephen Goldberg, an anthropologist, um, he studies mankind and he observed men and women and how they relate to one another. And in 1973, he wrote a book. It's called The Inevitability of Patriarchy. Now, he researched many countries and many cultures, and he found that, in general, males get the best jobs, that most, the jobs with the most status, the jobs with the most power. He went further to say, this is exactly what the societies expect. Um, he didn't say if it's a good thing. He didn't say it was a bad thing. He's just telling us this is how it is in 1973. Now, if you don't think it's, 
If you think it's different today, well, all you need to do is go to the most recent survey last week, which came out of wages paid to men and wages paid to women, and guess what the answer is there. Uh, he also went and studied physiology, meaning how a man is made up or how a woman is made up. And he says that in a man there's a drive for dominance. Uh, he says it's not found in women. He says it's not because of their bones being bigger or their muscles being stronger. He says it's because there's something in their brain. There's something in their hormonal system. There's something about them that makes them startlingly different to women. Uh, well, there's a news flash. He's worked out men and women are different. Uh, now, I don't know if Goldberg is a Christian. I don't know if he even believes that we're created. But we as Christians, we can join the dots, can't we? Uh, we know God made us different. Our convictions are influenced by Scripture. Um, we form our views based on what Scripture says. And so we know, for most of us know, that Paul, when he's speaking about the order of the church in 1 Timothy 2 uh, and verses 12 and 13, he says this, he says, And I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And, and so he says, really, the creation order. Adam was formed first, Eve was formed second, well, it automatically determines, determines an order of authority and submission in the life of the church. Um, in 1 Corinthians, he puts it another way. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, he says, we read that at the beginning of the service, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. And here he's observing there's an order in the Trinity. And he's saying that order in the Trinity needs to be mirrored in the order in the life of a church. And so the order of the Godhead, the order in creation, is unchangeable. Uh, it's from the beginning. It's how we are made. It's in our DNA. It's not cultural. It's not the invention of a bitter and twisted male chauvinist pig. No, Paul is saying God made us different and he has given us roles so that we can live in order. Uh, and here he's basically saying the same thing. He's saying God uh, has made the husband the head of the wife as also Christ is the head of the church. Interestingly though, Goldberg, we'll go back to him for a minute, he, he comes to some interesting conclusions. And he says because of this headship, we have to be aware that if we don't control this headship in some way, it will lead to oppression. If it is not managed somehow, this headship, um, it will never be constructive. Um, so what does headship mean? We've used the term a few times already this morning. Well, surely it is an expression of authority. One person has an authority over the other. Uh, surely it's leadership as well. Um, Chapel says it cannot be being passive. It cannot be abdication. So I cannot say I'm the head of my home, and so as the head I've decided I don't need to take any interest. 
in anything. You do what you want and I'll do what I want. That's the decision I made as a head. No, that's not what it means. Uh, we're going to try and define what headship actually means in the rest of this service uh, or sermon. But for the first part, we should note that headship is determined by God. Uh, verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. The second point, uh, a headship is defined not by creation, but by redemption. Um, most obviously, if you want to look at the word submission, the opposite word to submission is rule. If you're looking at submission, another opposite word is to lead or to control. So you would expect God to instruct husbands, husbands you need to rule, husbands you need to control your wives, husbands you need to lead your wives. Uh, no, he actually says, men you are to love your wives. Um, look at verse 25. Husbands love your wives. And men at this point, I know I took the women down memory lane last week and took them to the wedding day. Can I take you down memory lane as well? I'd like to take you not to your wedding day because you've probably forgotten that. Um, uh, instead what I'd like you to do is try and remember the days when you were courting. Uh, when, when you were actually going out together. You met this lady. Uh, you had a few conversations with her, you were drawn to her, you were attracted to her, and you started going out together. Uh, try and remember one of the dates that you had, if you can. And at this time, once again, we don't want to separate into Team Blue or Team Red, so women, it's probably better you hold your husband's hand at this time, because I might be shaking him up a little bit. You see, you're dressed up, you put on aftershave, uh, you faked the fact that you like romantic movies. Uh, you even pretended sport is not so important to you. Um, and then, as you got to know each other, and by the time you got to this date, um, she even got the sense that God was more important to you than her. Uh, and that was not true either. Because you knew you were in love. Um, what did you do? So what did you do? Well, most of us took up an advanced English lesson and then went straight to Greek lessons immediately after that because we wanted to understand that word love. What does it mean, I'm in love? Um, in English, you worked out, well, love can mean anything, really. And uh, most recently, we've been told love means love, uh, which is about as senseless as you can get. But when you got to Greek, that became a little bit more painful, didn't it? Uh, because in Greek, as you started to look at that word love, um, we don't believe in luck, but I'll put it this way, by sheer luck you landed on the word eros, uh, which speaks of passionate and sensual love. The word erotic comes from that word eros. And you learned that eros is linked to sexual desires. And instantly you ticked that box and said, yep, I got that. I want to move on to the next word in Greek. And the next word you found was philia, which refers to friendship or affection. And once again, you thought to yourself, well, I've liked this lady I've met. I enjoy conversation with her. She's intelligent. She's got a sense of humor. Uh, she's actually faking a 
enjoyment of sport, and bingo, I've hit the jackpot. Um, I don't need any more Greek because I've got two definitions of love already ticked off. Uh, but now you've been married a few years and uh, you can't believe you missed this word agape. Uh, there it was in the Bible. How could you have missed it? Um, if only your pastor told you. And surprisingly, I can tell you today, he probably did tell you, you were just not listening at the time. Um, he told you that if you go to Ephesians 5.25... The word for love is agape. Husbands, agape your wives. Husbands, agape love your wives. And, and you sort of now know what agape means, uh, but you just wish it didn't apply to marriage. Um, you can sort of understand it applies in church life, uh, but to remind you, I've got to bring it back to marriage, don't I? And the dictionary puts it this way. It says it is a love based on evaluation and choice. It is a matter of will and action. You do not fall into love, you show love. It involves being loyal. It requires the lover highly regarding the one who is loved. Uh, Paul doesn't bother to explain agape and how it works out in the life of a marriage. He just gives you an illustration. He says you won't find this illustration in the dictionary. You find the illustration in a person. And the person is the Lord Jesus Christ. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. And we're deep into Ephesians, so most of you men who've been coming on the journey in Ephesians, you generally know something about the love of Christ for his church. But once again, I'd like to remind you, his love for the church started well before he died on the cross. His love for the church began even before he was born of Mary. Uh, Jesus did not uh, set his love on the church by just sheer accident? No. Uh, it, it started before time. Uh, he made a deliberate choice, didn't he? To obey his father out of love. He made a choice to willingly go to the cross for his bride. And in eternity, based on that choice, uh, it was a movement of will followed by action. And it shows you that love is really just not a feeling. Uh, Jesus did not set his love on a perfect church. He did not set his love on a clean church. He did not set his love on a submissive church. He chose a bride who was drowning in sin and this bride was loving her sin. And perhaps this morning, I just need to bring the most basic fact in relation to love to husbands. On your wedding day, you actually thought you were marrying someone sinless, I suspect. In all that white, in all that beauty, 
in the wonderful speeches that told you what a wonderful person she was, um, you thought she was sinless for a moment. But newsflash, even in the honeymoon you worked out that your wife is a sinner. And it's so important that you grasp this because even though she scrubbed up well for wedding day, sin over time takes away her beauty. And you're sort of tempted to think, this is not the person I married. And so I am so righteous myself that I can start not loving her. Uh, but, but Christ loves his bride despite the fact that she sinned, in spite of her sin. This is how we understand the cross, isn't it? If you're a Christian, the key verses about the cross are this, aren't they? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still without strength, when we could do nothing for Jesus, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Um, you've heard that advice, and I sometimes have said this to some of you. Um, the advice is, go home and write down every single sin that troubles you about your wife, and then get a red text and write the word forgiven over it, and then scrunch the paper up and throw in the bin. Uh, that didn't work for me. Uh, what I was encouraged to do was to write all the sins down and never throw it out and pray over the sins. Uh, do not pray for your wife to be changed, but pray that I will love her, just like Christ would love a sinner. Pray that I would love her despite her sin, in spite of her sin. This is just how Jesus Christ loves you. This is how he loves his church. The second thing we pick up from uh, this verse when we talk about Christ loving his church and giving himself for her is that agape love is a giving love. He gave himself for her. Eros uh, somehow gets satisfied when self is satisfied. Uh, Philia is interested in people who are interesting. Uh, Agape uh, sets its love upon someone who cannot or will not do anything for you. Uh, Agape is purely gratis. And Agape doesn't start because someone does something for you. Agape starts because you take the initiative. Um, it involves you starting off. You must show love. And I say this again to the husbands, you have to do something. And even in the most difficult of times, it's hard to say sorry for your sin. Um, and there are so many. But, but don't worry about saying sorry. Show love. Hold hands. Um... No need to try to find something interesting to talk about. No need to try to find something flattering to talk about. Uh, show love by having a family devotion. Talk about someone else. Talk about Jesus. Do not talk about duties. Do not talk about things. Talk about a person. Uh, 
talking about Jesus and his love. You, you cannot say I love you possibly some days, uh, but just text it to get started. If you're in a fight, take the initiative and start by saying, sorry, I'd like to resolve this. Folks, this is sacrificial love. This is what it means to give or to die to yourself. This is what it means to not worry about your own welfare, but to worry about the welfare of your wife. Christ loved his church and gave, gave himself for her. And then we pick up from this text that he gave himself for her. It's really quite exclusive, isn't it? What it's saying is, when Jesus died on the cross, he did not die for the Hindu. He did not die for the Muslim. He did not die for the atheist. He's saying he exclusively died for his people, his elect, the church. He did not die for the whole world. If that's what you believe, it would be the same as a husband saying, I'm not just marrying you, my wife, but I'm willing to marry all the women in Smithfield. But let's hang out together. That is not what Jesus says. He says he died for his church. And it's so exclusive that it obviously means, men, there's no room for adultery. Uh, we, we have to turn our dreams off the other woman. We have to turn our eyes off the other woman. We have to turn our affections, our phones, our PCs, everything away from the other woman. And we have to drink water from your own cisterns. You have to rejoice in the wife of your youth. You are commanded. You are commanded not by me. You are commanded by God. Husbands, love your wife. Your headship is not defined by culture. Your headship is defined by redemption. And the last thing, husbands or men, let your love be a picture of redemption and creation. Now Chapel says headship is not dominance, it's responsibility. It's not being passive. He argues that in the West, the norm for men is to abdicate. You see, we grew up loving everybody loves Raymond or as the younger kids are growing up they love um, well, I don't know what's the name of that show with the pig um, Peppa Pig um, the husband is the bumbler and the stumbler and he does nothing he, uh, when he really is having a great time he's either playing golf or watching TV um, the wife though takes the responsibility for the whole home Husbands avoid their leadership. They wait for agendas to come to them. They never set the agenda. They never set the direction for themselves first and then for their wife to follow. And then husbands, basically, once again, by popular TV shows, they sit around and expect their wives to serve them. Uh, but for a husband to serve their wife, uh, is really a difficult thing. Uh, but headship here, quite obviously, if you copy Jesus, means service, doesn't it? 
And it's not service to our garages, it's not service to our TVs, it's not service to our sport. Uh, so what does this service look like? What does this responsibility look like? Um, does it include washing the dishes? Uh, does it mean we have to stay up at night with every crying baby? Uh, does it mean husbands have to cook at least 50% of the meals? Um, you see, we've got to come back and interrogate the text, don't we? And ask God, what does it mean? And once again, that key word is that word love. It's an imperative verb, which means it's a command. It's not something you sit and negotiate with God, you do it. It is an active verb, which means it's not something that is done for you. It's not something that starts by receiving. It's not done for you. It's something you must do. The emphasis on the you must do it. The verb is in the present tense, which means you do it now. You do it now and you do it whatever it is now. You don't leave it for tomorrow. This is not something that is a memory of the past. It's not a word that was used in your wedding service. It's an active, present imperative. Husbands, therefore I can ask you, are you loving your wives? I can ask myself, am I loving Sarah? Now the continual and perpetual nature of this love is so obvious from verse 26 when he goes on. It says that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And here we are given a glimpse into the nature of salvation. Too often we have fallen into a heap thinking that salvation is a one-off event in the past. Uh, we say something like, I made a decision in 1979. Or some of us might say, I went to the front when I was 15 years old. But, but here salvation is described as ongoing. Redemption is described as perpetual. Uh, it's continual. Jesus gave himself for the church at the cross once. That's true. Uh, but now there is this ongoing work of cleansing, of sanctifying, of washing, until the church is brought to a glorious completion in the future. And, and to grasp this majestic salvation, Paul overloads us with imagery. There's so much imagery, I'm sort of caught totally mixed up in some of the imagery myself. There's just so much of it. Firstly, he, he brings up the picture of redemption. We've already seen that. Christ gave himself for her. Uh, then he brings up this picture of a Middle Eastern wedding uh, where there has to be this proposal and this acceptance. And then immediately after that, the Groom goes away to raise money, break up his piggy bank and make sure he has enough dowry for the father-in-law. And whilst he's doing that, the wife is separated by the women into a special, if you like, position where she's washed, she's uh, perfumed and painted 
and prepared to be beautiful for her big day. And then after some time comes this wedding feast and this big wedding celebration. You, you see, Paul sees Jesus as the one who gives the ultimate dowry. He gave himself. He gave his life. And if this is not enough, rather than just leaving his bride on the side to go and prepare herself with her friends, he comes in. And he himself comes to prepare his bride to get her ready for the big day by washing and cleansing and sanctifying her. Folks, salvation is not just the one-off decision in the past. It's continual. Christ's continual work in us. He continually works in us until we are brought to the marriage feast in heaven. And husbands, this is what you've been called to. This is what you signed up for. Uh, you signed up to die to yourself that you could prepare a bride for heaven. Now you're not uh, the one who dies literally as a saviour for your wife. Uh, you're certainly not her saviour. And surely this picture though is, set, is giving you the clear picture that marriage is something you work at and something that's ongoing. It's not something that just happened once off in the past. Surely it's telling you there's a spiritual duty in marriage here. Um, there's a word ministry. The husband is responsible to cleanse and wash with the word. Um, and he's responsible to bring the Bible to his wife over and over and over again. His job is to be a minister of the word to her. By the word she is to be washed and cleansed and sanctified. Uh, we, we sometimes get ourselves confused. We, we sort of think the first job a husband has to do is the dishes. Uh, it's not washing the dishes. Uh, the first job is for him to be a studier of the word that he can wash her with the word. And then the second job is making the bed. Or perhaps child minding. Uh, actually, what the text is telling us, the man has to be freed up to study the Word. He, he doesn't have to be freed up to catch up on all the housework that wasn't done. He doesn't have to be freed up to sit on the couch and read the newspaper. Uh, no. A man must be a minister of the Word in his home to cleanse and sanctify his wife. Our wives must learn Jesus. And you are the key means given for how your wife will learn Jesus. Uh, yes, she's supposed to learn Jesus in church. But she should be able to come home and ask you questions about the Bible at home. Uh, this is why we encourage men in our church to do book reviews. This is why men do kids' talks. This is why they might read something up and summarize it for the other men. Why? Because we, as a church, are coming alongside men to train men to explain truth, to explain truth in their homes, to explain truth to their wives. We want to equip men to help their wife follow Jesus. Now, if redemption was one picture, the Middle Eastern marriage is another picture, you would think that would be enough, but Paul, the Apostle, gives us one more picture. 
He goes on back to creation. He says, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. You see, Paul's reminding the reader that God took a rib out of the man to form the woman. Uh, he's saying to the man, your wife has been made out of the same stuff as you. Um, husbands, if you care for your own welfare, uh, then you are to care for your wife's welfare as well. Husbands, it is your responsibility to care for, to protect, to provide for all the practical necessities of your wife. Uh, as Steve and Lily pointed out, uh, we're not to provide everything our wives want, uh, but we are to provide her necessities. And men, you're not to work hard to provide for your own greed. And you're not to work hard for your own status. Um, we, you're to care voluntarily, cheerfully, and certainly with the sweat on your face until you return to the ground. You are to die to yourself as an ongoing thing. You will never stop dying to yourself until you actually die literally. Notice the emphasis of verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. And it's normal to read this passage with practical needs in mind. Why do we do that? Because practical needs are right under our noses. We always think of our practical needs. Wives will think about what needs they have and they're thinking about their bodies and their flesh. Husbands are thinking about how can I please my wife with fleshly and practical, if you like, provisions. Uh, but we've got to see this in its spiritual light. Uh, a wife is to be nourished and nourished again by the word of God. And then a wife has to be cherished. Uh, you're responsible not only for her spiritual life in the home, you're not only responsible for her practical life in the home, but you are also responsible for her emotional life and she's to be cherished. That means you will say to her you love her. You will actually tell her that she is the wife of your youth and you rejoice in her. Um, you will take up the role of being her spiritual leader uh, to make sure she comes to church, to make sure she is in the Word and studying. What you should be doing is doing a small measurement, shouldn't you? You should be asking yourself, is my wife closer to Jesus because she married me? Or is my wife moving away from Jesus now that she has married me? Is she getting sick of Jesus because of our marriage? Uh, and then you should ask her, does my wife know that I cherish her? Uh, does she know that I cherish her more today than I do when we were dating? Men, let your love be a picture of redemption and creation. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for our wives, we thank you again for uh, your order in 
salvation, your order in creation. Uh, we come though and we do say sorry for our many sins as husbands. I say sorry uh, for my sin, Lord. And we come and ask that you would be in, uh, patient with us and so gracious uh, to change us, uh, to turn us, uh, to stop us from being that proud man uh, who will not turn, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to sing about the Lord Jesus.